Hello, Radio Reading. This is Bill Feldman coming to you with the Wall Street Journal. Today is June 23rd, and boy, do I have a lineup for you. I've been looking every day through the Wall Street Journal, and let me tell you, I got about 23, 21 saved articles, so I'm just going to pick and choose through them, and I'm going to start out with Who Wants to Be a Cop? And this is from Monday, June 22nd, and this is from William McGurran out of the Wall Street Journal, and it says, Detroit's police chief talks about the respect owed officers and the respect they owe us. Uh, Rising from weeks of protests against police brutality and racism, one reform now dominates discussion, defund the police. This is a solution endorsed by the Minneapolis City Council. The demand of Black Lives Matter and the message painted in large yellow uh, letters on the streets across from the White House. But there is a more fundamental threat to policing seldom even mentioned. What happens if men and women of character and ability conclude that being a police officer these days just isn't worth it? I'm keenly aware of how long morale can affect how police do their jobs, says Detroit Police Chief James Craig. It's a big concern for me. Good police morale translates into lower crime. A Motor City native, Mr. Craig began his career in Detroit in 1977. His mother didn't want him to join, but signed up with the Los Angeles Police Department a few years later after being laid off. In 2009, he took the chief's job in Portland, Maine, and two years later, he became Cincinnati's first African-American police chief. In 2014, he returned home as Detroit's top cop, leading a force that is majority black. His city's experience these past few weeks speaks to Mr. Craig's impact. Though Detroit had its share of anger, tear gas, and unrest, it didn't suffer the wholesale looting and chaos other cities endured. No doubt it had something to do with the chief's approach. If you are out there protesting, even if your message is hostile to law enforcement, that is your right, and we will protect you, he says. But if you commit a crime, you will be arrested. You will be arrested with dignity and respect, But you will be arrested and you will go to jail. Good policing, he says, is rooted in trust. Officers have the right to expect their leaders to back them up when things get tough. But it's a two-way street. Cops have to show they will hold their bad apples accountable and build relationships with the community before tragedies happen. It's one reason he believes... A chief has to go out in front of incidents and be transparent, lest the facts be overwhelmed by some media narrative. If you have the trust of the people, they will listen to you, Mr. Craig says. They might not agree with you, but they will give you a window to make your case and not rush to judgment. Given the many interactions between police and civilians, some are bound to go sideways, but the public needs to make clear what they expect of their police. For example, what should a cop do when a man, especially one physically larger than the officer, refused to be arrested? 
Civilian sometimes assumes that a suspect resisting arrest can be subdued quickly and easily with just the right moves. In reality, even when police are in the right and following their correct procedure, a fight is never pretty. I've never seen a force incident that looks good when it's on television, Mr. Craig says. Policing isn't for everyone. The life is hard on families. Officers go to work every day with the possibility they won't be coming home. They deal with people at their worst, sometimes in the wake of unspeakable tragedy. And they are expected to keep their cool even when spat on or subjected to vilest insults. The average person could not put put up with what cops are expected to put up with, Mr. Craig says. We are held to a higher standard. A big question is whether today's treatment of officers by violent demonstrators, by politicians, and sometimes even by their own leaders will make it harder for departments to attract the quality recruits they seek. After all, even with the best policies, a good police department still starts with good people. But a survey last September by the Police Executive Research Forum makes clear that well before the George Floyd protests, the number of police applications was going down while the number of law enforcement officers leaving the profession early was going up. There seems to be fewer young people today who have any interest in policing, the study says. Going forward, any effort to address police brutality must begin with honest distinctions. Mr. Craig rightly distinguishes between protesters and criminals. Similarly, Americans' national debate over policing must begin by resisting efforts to lump the majority of police who do their jobs well and humanely in with those like the Minneapolis cop in that horrific video. The chief understands the challenge and says that attracting and retaining good men and women is always on his mind, but he adds that anyone considering the life in blue should know how vital those who wear the badge are to the communities they serve, especially the most vulnerable. People don't want us to abandon them to criminals, he says. They love us, they want us to do our jobs, and they want more of us. So there you go. I've heard that in the other articles. And moving on from that one, let's go to... Uh, let's let it... Uh, when Cops Aren't on the Beat. This is from June 22nd, 2020. And that was from yesterday. When Cops Aren't on the Beat, shootings are soaring in New York and violence as usual in Chicago. Good news in Chicago over Father's Day weekend. Only 14 people were killed in shootings, compared to the 24 over the last weekend in May. On the other hand, 104 people were shot this past weekend, compared to 84 in May weekend, but at least fewer were killed. So it goes into Windy City, where political leaders treat mayhem in minority neighborhoods as something that they'd rather not talk about. This past weekend, the dead included a 13-year-old girl shot in the neck at home, according to the Chicago Sun-Times. 
Meantime, shootings are soaring in New York City after police disbanded the plainclothes anti-crime unit that helped to keep guns off the street. The roughly 600 police officers were reassigned to other units as part of the shutdown of the stop-and-frisk policing that became a target of progressives and court cases. Good thing those folks don't live in high-crime neighborhoods like 35-year-old Kenneth Singleton, who was shot Saturday morning as he washed his car in East New York. New York and Chicago have strict gun laws, but don't blame police if they're cautious in enforcing them today. The price for this caution will be more violent crimes. So there, that's uh, that one there was short and sweet from the editorial board. Whoops, wrong button. I'll go back. Saved articles. What the data says about police. This is from yesterday, June 22nd, by Roland G. Fryer, Jr. I have led two starky different lives. That of a southern black boy who grew up without a mother and knows what it's like to swallow the bitter pill of police brutality and that of an economics nerd who believes in the power of data to inform efficient policy. In 2015, after watching Walter Scott get gunned down on video by a North Charleston, South Carolina police officer, I set out on a mission to quantify racial differences in police use of force. To my dismay, this work has been widely misrepresented and misused by people on both sides of the ideology aisle. It has been wrongly cited as evidence that there is no racism in, in policing that football players have no right to kneel during the national anthem and that the police should shoot back or should shoot black people more often here's what my work does say there are large racial differences in police use of non-lethal force my research team analyzed nearly 5 million police encounters from new york city we found that when police reported the reported the incidents there were 53% more likely to use physical force on a black civilian than a white one. In a separate nationally represented data set asking civilians about their experience with police, we found the use of physical force on blacks to be 350% as likely. This is true of every level of non-lethal force, from officers putting their hands on civilians to striking them with a baton. We controlled for every variable available in a myriad of ways. That reduced the racial disparity by 66%, but blacks were still significantly more likely to endure police force. Compliance by civilians doesn't eliminate racial differences in police use of force. Black civilians who were recorded as compliant by police were 21% more likely to, su to suffer police aggression than compliant whites. We also found that the benefits of compliance differ significantly by race. 
This was perhaps our most upsetting results for two reasons. The iniquity, in, in spite of compliance, clashed with the notion that the difference in police treatment of blacks and whites was a rational response to danger, and it complicates what we tell our children. Compliance does make you less likely to endure a beatdown, but the benefits is larger if you are white. People who invoke our work to argue that systematic police racism is a myth conveniently ignore these statistics. Racism may explain the findings, but the statistical evidence doesn't prove it. As economists, we don't get to label unexplained racial disparities racism. We didn't find racial differences in other officer-involved shootings. Our data comes from localities in California, Colorado, Florida, Texas, and Washington State and contains accounts of 1,399 police shootings at civilians between 2000 and 2015. In addition, from Houston, only in those same years we have had reports describing situations in which gunfire might have been justified by department's guidelines, but the cops didn't shoot. This is a key piece of data that popular online databases don't include. No matter how we analyze the data, we find no racial differences in shootings overall. In any city in particular, or in any subset of data, I have grappled with these results for years as I witness videos of unmistakable police brutality against black men. How can the data tell a story so different from what we see with our eyes? Our analysis tells us what happens on average. It isn't average when a police officer casually kneels on someone's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Are there racial differences in the most extreme forms of police violence? The southern boy in me says yes. The economist says we don't know. Several scholars have rightly pointed out that these data all begins with an interaction and suggests that racial policy or policing manifests itself in more interactions between blacks and the police. The impact of this hypothesis in our shooting data seems minimal. The results on police shootings are statistically the same across all call types, ranging from officer-initiated contact with a suspicious person, where racism in whom to police is likely paramount, to a 911 call of a homicide in progress, where interaction with a potential suspect is more likely independent of race. Are the data nationally representative? We don't know. But at least two other studies, both published in 2016 by Philip Ataba, Golf et al. and Ted R. Miller et al. have since found the same using different data. Moreover, when we use our data to calculate the descriptive statistics used in popular databases, such as the Washington Post, we find a higher percentage of black civilians among unarmed men killed by police than they do. Those statistics, however, cannot address the fundamental question. 
when a shooting might be justified by department standards, are police more likely actually to shoot if the civilian is black? Only our data can answer this question because it contains information on situations in which a shooting might meet departmental standards but didn't happen. The answer appears to be no. Investigating police departments can have unintended consequences. Following the brutal beating of Rodney King by Los Angeles police officers in 1991, the Attorney General was given the power to investigate and litigate cases involving a pattern of practices of conduct by law enforcement officers that violates the Constitution or federal rights. Many argue that the answer to police reform in America must include more of these types of investigations. We conducted the first empirical examination of pattern or practice investigations. We found that investigations not preceded by viral incidents of deadly force on average reduced homicides and total felony crimes. But for the first, for the five investigations that were preceded by a viral incident of deadly force, there was a stark increase in crime. 893 more homicides and 33,472 more felonies than would have been expected with no investigation. The increase in crime co coincide with an abrupt change in the quantity of policing activity. In Chicago alone, after the killing of Laquan McDonald, the number of police-civilian interactions decreased by 90% in the month the investigation was announced. Importantly, in the eight cities that had a viral incident but no investigation, there was no subsequent increase in crime. Investigations are crucial, but we need to find ways of holding police accountable without sacrificing more black lives. For all of us who are frustrated about decades of racial disparities that have gone unchecked, this is our Gettysburg. Yet, we do ourselves a disservice in the battle against racial inequality if we don't adhere to rigorous standards of evidence, if we cherry-pick databases on our preconceptions, the truth is enough to justify sweeping reforms. Mr. Fryer is a professor of economics at Harvard. All right, the next saved article. Let them load back up. Now, let's see. I think I had one more in there. For this half hour here. We'll go with this one here. Seattle's anarchy sets many bad presidents. I can't help but see the irony when a group of far-left vigilantes took over a neighborhood 
The first thing they did was build a wall and set up checkpoints to keep certain people out. June 22nd, 2020. Regarding Carl Rose, Seattle's chaotic autonomous zone, op-ed June 18th, anti-gun liberals and progressives and all citizens should call for the immediate arrest of Raz Simone if he really handed out an AR-15 from his trunk to another person. The new gun safety law in Washington mandates that all gun sales or transfers, including gifts or loans of guns, must go through a background check via a licensed gun dealer. On the face of it, Mr. Simone committed an illegal transfer of a gun. Tom Gimperitz, Seattle. Carl Rove reports the mayor of Seattle called the Seattle Autonomous Zone a peaceful expression of our community's collective grief, unquote. Suppose a group of self-appointed pro-life activists forcibly occupied part of a city against the will of its residents and declared it a permanent abortion-free zone. Or suppose a group of gun rights activists did the same and declared it a permanent open carry zone with free ammunition for all. It's unlikely that that would be tolerated and seen as peaceful expression. Why isn't lawless vigilantism seen for what it really is? Mark Johnson, Berwyn, PA. I can't help but see the irony when a group of far-left vigilantes took over a neighborhood. The first thing they did was build a wall and set up checkpoints to keep certain people out. Patrick O'Malley, Groton, Massachusetts. There you go. That's an interesting opinion column. Next, the... From June 16th, 2020, this one follows up with those. What Second Amendment? The justices declined to take 10 cases that might clarify gun rights. The Supreme Court punted again on the Second Amendment this week, declining to hear 10 gun right cases that have been teed up for positive re, uh, possible review. Excuse me. At least Justice Clarence Thomas got in another sharp word about this court's constitutional orphan, as he once called it. The court heard arguments this term in a lawsuit over New York's gun regulation, but in April, a majority said that dispute was moot. Three justices in dissent worried that the high court's Second Amendment president president are being flouted by lower judges. Justice Brett Kavanaugh urged his colleagues to address that issue soon. The same day, the court dis- distributed 10 other gun rights petitions for the justices to consider taking, granting a case required requires four votes. So a reasonable inference was that they'd soon find another vehicle for a Second Amendment correction. But on Monday, all 10 cases were denied. Perhaps one or more of the conservative justices feared that Chief Justice John Roberts would go wobbly, resulting in a Second Amendment defeat. 
Whatever the internal dynamics, the result is a distinct lack of clarity about what the Constitution requires. One petition in Rogers versus Grewal was from a New Jersey man who said he runs a large ATM business that causes him to frequently work in high crime areas. He sought a permit to carry a handgun and, quote, met all the eligibility and training requirements, unquote. But in New Jersey, applicants have to show a justifiable need, meaning an urgent necessity for self-protection, as evident by specific threat or previous attacks. The appeal courts are split on whether such tests to carry a gun are allowed. The high court's refusal to hear the case brought a dissent from Justice Thomas, joined in part by Justice Kavanaugh. It seems highly unlikely that the court would allow a state to enforce a law requiring a woman to provide a justifiable need before seeking an abortion, he wrote. But today, faced with a petition challenging just such a restriction on a citizen's Second Amendment rights, the court simply looks the other way. Another rejected case, Warman versus Healy, challenges a Massachusetts ban on the possession of, quote, assault weapons, unquote, such as the popular AR-15 rifle. The Supreme Court has said that the Second Amendment protects arms is common use. But again, lower courts are divided over what this means. The record suggests the First Circuit Court of Appeals held in the Massachusetts case that wielding the prescribed weapon for self-defense within the home is tantamount to using a sledgehammer to crack open the shell of a peanut. In the Second Amendment, is the Second Amendment limited to handguns in the home? It's a reasonable question. If the Supreme Court is too gun-shy to answer, then Americans will watch as Justice Anton Scalia's landmark opinion, D.C. versus Heller, 2008, is slowly hollowed out by politicians and liberal judges. As you can see, the left is slowly taking away all of our constitutional rights, through le- not through legislation, but through the through the courts. And that's how it's going to go. A thousand little slices. And how's that going to happen? Beware the fall ballot harvest. Too many states are, aren't preparing for a potential vote-by-mail mess. This is by the editorial board, June 19th, 2020. When Donald Trump gripes about mail voting, Democrats see an attempt to discredit the result if he loses in November. This president, Joe Biden said last week, is going to try to steal this election. If they truly believe this, Democrats should do more to safeguard the ballot. They're now doing the reverse. The Democrats' House passed a bill that would mandate ballot harvesting nationwide, letting paid activists canvas neighborhoods to collect absentee votes. The bill would also force states to count mail ballots that arrive after Election Day, as long as the postmark meets that date. In that case, the next president could be in doubt for weeks. Local Democrats seem equally un- 
eager to shore up the ballot box. By a vote three to three vote Wednesday, the bipartisan Wisconsin Election Commission failed to advance a proposal to effectively ban ballot harvesting. According to a, a reigning interpretation of state law, third-party ballot collection is legal. Activists wearing Trump hats or Biden shirts can knock on doors and take possession of votes. A petition for rulemaking filed on behalf of five voters by the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty claimed that this legal reading is incorrect. The law says that absentee ballots shall be mailed by the elector or delivered in person to the municipal clerk. As the petitioner said, that statute obviously means that the elector shall mail it or the elector shall deliver it. They sought new rules to enforce this view. The commissioner, three appointed from each party, split on partisan lines. Democrats argued that the proposal could penalize a husband carrying his wife's ballot, that setting policy is the legislature's job, and that ballot harvesting isn't a problem. It's just made-up stuff, said the Commissioner Mark Thompson, and we should not give any credence to it. Republicans countered that the number of absentee ballots in 2020 will be substantially higher than ever. Given the margin in 2016, the presidential campaign will be jockeying for every one of them. If you think there's no ballot harvesting in Wisconsin, said Commissioner Dean Knudsen, you buckle up because there most definitely will be. Mr. Trump won the state in 2016 by a mere 22,748 votes. It's a possibility everywhere, too. In 2016, Florida's Division of Elections offered this guidance. Any person can collect and return other voters' votes voted absentee ballots to the uh, supervisor of elections. No limit exists. A small stipulation, there's a criminal offense for uh, pensionary or other beneficial exchange, meaning apparently that harvesters must volunteer. So there you go. Come in this election period. It is called fake ballots because anybody can fill one out and say, here, take this to the voters for me. So we're going to have a crazy, crazy time this voting season if you, it's not vote with your own ID. Well, that covers this half hour. So grab your drinks and grab your treats. We'll be right back with part two of Wall Street Journal. Hi, this is Bill Feltham returning to you with the Wall Street Journal. I hope that didn't take too long. I did have my chocolate chip cookie. So uh, there we go. Got them from my uh, son-in-law and my grandsons for Father Day. And so here we go. The first article is out of the business section of the Wall Street Journal. And this one is dated June 19, 2020. AMC Theaters mandates mass for moviegoers after all. Requirement is a reversal from planned announced Thursday. And this was updated uh, June 19, 2020 at 2.25 p.m. Now, that may make a difference to some of you, but I don't know. AMC Entertainment Holdings Incorporated said Friday it will require customers to wear a mask when it reopens its theaters next Monday. 
reversing a controversial element of a plan the company announced just a day earlier. Public health experts and some moviegoers criticized the world's largest cinema company for saying masks would be optional. Social media campaigns were started to pressure AMC to change its policy. Some potential customers said online that they would skip an AMC movie if it meant sitting in proximity to others who weren't wearing masks. In discussion, the reopening plan on Thursday, AMC Chief Executive Adam Aaron said he didn't want the reopening to get marred in uh, or yeah, mired in the political debate around mask wearing, a step epidemiologists and health officials say is a key component of stopping the spread of the uh, Wuhan flu. Uh, they said novel coronavirus, but it's it's the Wuhan flu from China. This announcement prompted an intense and immediate outcry from our customers, and it is clear from this response that we did not go far enough on the usage of masks, Mr. Aaron said in a statement on Friday that rocky road to reopening follows months of pandemic-induced shutdown and fear that decimated earnings and millions made millions of customers nervous about leaving the house. Not only is AMC counting on ticket sales to replenish billions in depleted revenue, it must also convince customers that sitting with others for hours in an enclosed space is a safe proposition. Enforcement remains an issue for all exhibitors since it will be difficult to monitor moviegoers after screening starts without disrupting the viewing. The mask issue could become a sticking point for the expedition industry at large. Shortly after AMC's announcement Friday, one of its main competitors, Cineworld Group, PLC, Regal Entertainment Group, announced it Two, was revising a previous previous policy and would require guests to wear masks. The nation's number three uh, circuit, Cinemark Holdings Incorporated, has said it was encouraging but not requiring guests to wear masks. Smaller circuits like Alamo Drafthouse has used their mask requirements in marketing material that position their auditorium as the safer option. Asked about AMC's original position on CNBC Friday, former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Godlett said, There's very few things we can do to try to prevent wider spread and another epidemic heading into the fall, and this is one of them. AMC had also planned to require its employees to wear masks and will sell them for $1 a piece at the theater. The company and other exhibitors are capping attendance so moviegoers can sit apart from others, and deep cleaning auditoriums is between screenings. All three major circuits expect to have operations up and running by mid-July, days ahead of when the first major studio releases and expected to be hit screens. AMC plans to open about 450 of its 600 some domestic locations on July 15th, with about 150 more following by July 24th. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? So now uh, you can go pay your money to the Hollywood weirdos who uh, will call you stupid and call you all the other names if you don't vote the way they want you to vote, and you can support your, your favorite actor who thinks you're an idiot. So there you go.
as you can tell, I don't spend my money to support the Holly Weirdos. But that's up to you. It has nothing to do with me. Okay. From the bookshelf of the Wall Street Journal, Apocalypse Never Review. False Gods for Lost Souls. Environmentalism offers emotional relief and spiritual satisfaction. Given it as giving it adherence a sense of purpose and transcendence. And you say, Bill, you never did a book review. This one sounded interesting. So I'm going to read this just in case you want to hear it. There is a reoccurring puzzle in the history of environmental movement. Why do green activists keep promoting policies that are harmful not only to humans but also to the environment? Michael Schellenberger is determined to solve this problem and he is singularly well qualified. He understands activists because he has been one himself since high school when he raised money for the Rainforest Action Network. Early in his adult career, he campaigned to protect redwood trees, promoted renewable energy, stopped global warming, and improved the lives of farmers and factory workers in third world. But the more he traveled, the more he questioned what Westerners' activism was accomplishing for people or for nature. He became a different kind of activist by helping start a movement called eco-modernism, the subject of Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. He still wants to help the poor and preserve ecosystems, but through industrialization instead of sustainable development. He still worries about climate change, but he doesn't consider it the most important problem today, much less a threat to humanity's survival. And he sees the Greens' favorite solution are making the problem worse. He chronicles environmental progress around the world and crisply, crisply debunks myth after gloomy myth. No, we are not in the middle of the sixth mass extinction because only 0.001% of the planet's species go extinct annually. No, whales were not saved by Greenpeace, but rather by the capitalist entrepreneurs who discovered cheaper substitutes for whale oil. First petroleum, then vegetable oils. That decimated the whaling industry. They're saying that for whale oil that decimated the whaling industry long before activists got involved. No, plastic doesn't linger for thousands of years in the ocean. They're broken down by sunlight and other forces. No, climate change has not caused an increase in the frequency or intensity of floods, droughts, hurricanes, and tornadoes. In 2002, Mr. Schellenberger proposed the new Apollo project, a precursor to the Green New Deal. Many of its ideals for promoting renewable energies were adopted by the Obama administration and received more than $150 billion in federal funds. But Mr. Schellenberger was disillusioned with the results. A disproportionate share of the money, as he documents, went to companies that enriched donors to the Obama campaign but failed to yield practical 
practical technologies. He then, oh, excuse me, he now considers most forms of renewable energy to be impractical for large-scale use. Windmills and solar power are too expensive and unreliable as a primary source of power for people in poor countries, and they cause too much environmental damage because they require vast areas of land and harm flora and fauna. He faults Western activists and governments for trying to force these technologies on third world countries and prevent them from building hydroelectric and fossil fuel power plants. Rich nations, that's in quotes, he writes, quote, should do everything they can to help poor nations industrialize. Instead, many of them are doing something closer to the opposite, seeking to make poverty sustainable rather than to make poverty history. While industrialization causes a short-term rise in carbon emissions, in the long term, it's beneficial to the environment as people move to cities, allowing farmland to revert to nature, and as prosperity enables them to switch to cleaner and more compact forms of energy. Carbon emissions declined as people moved from wood to coal to natural gas, and then ultimately to what Mr. Schellenberger calls the safest and cleanest source, nuclear energy, the only practical technology for drastically curtailing carbon emissions. If only green activists would stop trying to shut down nuclear plants. Mr. Schellenberger blames the anti-nuke movement partly on fear-mongering by activists and journalists, partly on instinctive hostility to new technologies, and partly on financial self-interest. Every major climate activist group in America, he writes, including the Environmental Defense Fund, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and the Sierra Club, has been seeking to close nuclear plants around the United States while taking money from or investing in natural gas companies, renewable energy companies, and their investors who stand to make billions if nuclear plants are closed and replaced by natural gas. Mr. Schellenberger makes a persuasive case. Lucidity blending research data and policy analysis with a history of the Green Movement and Viginites uh, yeah, of people in poor countries suffering the consequences of, quote, environmental colonialism, unquote. He realizes, though, that rational arguments alone won't convince devout environmentalists. I was drawn towards the apocalypse view of climate change 20 years ago, he writes. I can see now that my heightened anxiety about climate reflected under underlying anxiety and unhappiness in my own life that had little to do with climate change or the state of the natural environment. For him and so many others, environmentalism offered emotional relief and spiritual satisfaction, giving them a sense of purpose and transcendation, uh, transcendence. It has become a substitute religion for those who have abandoned traditional faiths, as he explains in his concluding chapter, False Gods for Lost Souls. Its priests have been warning for half a century that humanity is about to be punished for its sins against nature. And no matter how often the doomsday forecasts fail, 
the faithful still thrill to each new one. <laughs> the trouble with the new environmental religion is that it has become increasingly apocalyptic, destructive, and self-defeating, he writes. It leads its adherents to demonize their opponents, often hypocritically. It drives them to seek to restrict power and prosperity at home and abroad. And it spreads anxiety and depression without meeting the deeper psychological, existentialism, and spiritual needs it ostensibly secular devotees seek. <laughs> Mr. Schellenberger wants to woo them to an alternative faith that he calls environmental humanism, which is committed to the transcendent moral purpose of universal human flourishing environmental progress. I'm not sure that's enough to attract converts, but it makes for a much truer picture of the world and a much cheerier read. <laughs> Mr. Tannery, a contributing editor for City Journal, is the co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negative Effects Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. So that's a pretty interesting book. I think you may find it very interesting and uh, very entertaining. And I've only been saying this uh, since I started it. Because when I was in school in a, a young skull full of mush in 1975, when they said uh, we got acid rain coming and it's going to kill us and, and the rainforest is being tore down, this is in 1974, 75, and that we were going to be uh, wearing parkas and the United States was going to be covered in ice in 1986. So we were scared to death by global freezing. And then when that didn't happen, guess what? I knew for a fact that this environmental stuff was BS. Well, I knew it shortly after that, probably by 1981 when I graduated high school, because there was always something new coming when, when nobody was convinced, when the acid rain didn't work uh, up, in, uh, up in the New England states. So when that didn't come, come through, we knew that the environmentalists were liars then. So it's always good to have a, you know, a clean environment, but they're too extreme and liars. So there you go. That's my little two cents. Now let's get into the, uh, the pros and cons of a truly private chat app. We'll get into a little technology here for our last 15 minutes of this half hour, half hour. From the tech, personal technology by Nicole Wynn. Signal, the pros and cons of a truly private chat app. Signal, the encrypted messaging app is, is seeing record numbers of downloads amid, amid the pandemic and nationwide protests. It might make sense for you too. Signal is having a moment. That's the name of the uh, program, by the way. The pandemic drove unprecedented signups on the encrypted messaging app as people started communicating more online. Then nationwide protests over police brutality prompted another round of records. Signal saw about 1 million downloads worldwide in May, according to analyst firm App Annie. Protests 
have flocked to the app, even though people who organize and participate in protests are protected by the First Amendment, they often seek secure communications out of caution. And if they do get into legal trouble, Signal is designed to limit the information the message service can give to the authorities. That is what initially attracted privacy diehards to Signal. In 2015, Talk, the app's creator, Moxie Marlin Spike, declared privacy is at an all-time low and surveillance is at an all-time high. Signal was intended as the antidote. In the interview, intervening years, the app has grown in popularity with 32.4 million installs, according to the data analyst firm Sensor Tower. It also has become a very useful, albeit bare-bones messaging app when Signal isn't one of one of a kind. Facebook Incorporated, WhatsApp, and Apple's Incorporated iMessage have similar end-to-end encryption. Experts say Signal is the most secure. If you aren't already on Signal, you might be wondering, should I be? This guide will help you answer that. What exactly is Signal? It's a messaging app. It's also a technology. Signal's Encrypting protocol is used by platforms such as WhatsApp, which is a Chinese app, just so you know if you didn't know that. And it is open source, which allows any security researcher to scrutinize its code for flaws and verify that the encryption is as secure as Signal claims. How does end-to-end encryption work? Encryption turns your messages and calls into a string of gibberish. Only the intended recipient is able to decrypt the message. No one else, not even the app's maker. In fact, end-to-end encryption is so secure that it has drawn the the ire of government officials who say encrypted messaging apps make it difficult to track down criminals. Even if you aren't a criminal or concerned about government surveillance, there's a strong argument for using encryption. It protects you from malicious actors keen on interception business secrets or credentials, as well as companies wanting to serve you personalized advertising. Just remember, encryption doesn't prevent a message's recipient from taking a screenshot or passing it along, or from someone seeing your message by gaining access to your phone. Always use a strong password. What can I do on Signal? You can text an audio message to individuals or groups and make one-on-one voice or video calls over the internet or a data connection. Everyone involved must be on Signal. There are mobile apps for Android, iPhone, and iPad, as well as desktop apps for Mac, Windows, and Linux. There is no support for Chrome OS on Chromebook. Over the past year, the app has added a number of fun features, including GIFs, stickers, and emoji reactions. Signal sticker Stickers is a large repository of community-made designs. Recently, Signal introduced a blur tool, which can be used to obscure faces or sensitive information on documents. To use it, tap on the camera icon from the main page of the app, take a picture or select a photo from your library, then tap the checkered circle blur icon. How can I make signal messages even more private? Disappearing messages. Select a conversation and tap your contact's name. There you can set a time between five seconds and one week 
after which viewed messages will automatically delete. View once me uh, media. The, this mobile-only feature automatically removes the photo or video from a conversation once it has been viewed. From the main app, uh, main app page, well, I'm sure that won't matter. You can get that information once you get the app. Signal pen. This prevents someone else from registering your phone on signal. An attached known as SIM swapping. Tap on your profile icon, then privacy, then enable signal pin. Is signal really better than WhatsApp and iMessage? Both WhatsApp and iMessage offer end-to-end -end encryption by default, and it's likely you already use at least one of them. So is signal the superior app? Yes and no. Signal's core mission, privacy, is evident throughout the design of the app. For example, when someone initiates a video call on Signal, your video isn't automatically turned on when you pick up. You accept the call, then turn on your camera. The app also doesn't log much information or metadata about the nature of the messages themselves. Signal makes it a point to keep as little data as possible while still being able to provide service, says Luho Bauer, professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. In a recent blog post, Mr. Marlinspike boasted that the only data the U.S. government was able to obtain from a 2016 grand jury subpoena was the data of the account's creation and the date of last use, nothing else. WhatsApp, on the other hand, tracked things like who you contacted and when, says Professor Bauer. A spokeswoman says Facebook doesn't provide WhatsApp data to law enforcement agencies retroactively. The company only shares the transaction log data collected after it receives a valid legal request. Apple also retains some metadata from iMessages, a.k.a. the Message app. When you enter a phone number to message someone, Apple verifies whether the number is iMessage compatible. A date and time of that lookup along with the phone number is saved for 30 days, then deleted. An Apple spokeswoman said Apple can't determine if any communications took place, only whether a user looked at a contact or initiated an iMessage. While that might not seem like much, metadata can easily serve as evidence. Just knowing who the contacts of a target are can expand an investigation, says Mary Fan, a law professor at the University of Washington. Cloud backups, while convenient, are yet another potential vulnerability with popular apps. Media messages stored in the cloud are protected by end-to-end -end encryption on either WhatsApp or iMessages. All signal data is stored locally, which means when you buy a new phone, you need to manually transfer your old signal messages. Because Signal isn't owned by a tech giant and is backed by a nonprofit foundation with $50 million from WhatsApp co-founder and Facebook ex-executive Brian Acton, it's likely won't ever show you ads. Why would I use Signal? For starters, WhatsApp and iMessage have far more features. To name a few, temporary location sharing, which is useful for meetups and group video chats, up to 8 on WhatsApp and 32 on Apple's embedded FaceTime uh, services. 
Signal also doesn't have those apps' massive user base. What WhatsApp has 2 billion users and Apple has sold nearly 2 billion iPhones. Your friends and family are more likely to use those companies' messaging service. I often find that whatever is the most convenient for people is what they're most likely to use successfully, Professor Bauer said. In other words, WhatsApp and iMessage are still more private and secure than plain SMS text messaging, and if that's where your contacts are, then they are still a good option. A few months ago, I was able to convince six of my tech-savvy friends and even my editor to move to Signal. In the end, only one stuck around, my husband, Will, who knew I was writing this column. So that's a pretty uh, pretty secure thing. So if you're looking to get away from, or a more, uh, looking for a more secure chat, if you're one of those... Uh, worried about being tracked this is an option for you and your people because you would have to have you and your people switch to it it's not a a common thing so we have about four minutes left here and we could do a little little article let me see if i have a little article says here, Amazon is coming down the street. The grocery deliveries of my youth are back due to the coronavirus era. Yes, this one here. Uh, before the coronavirus, our mailman rarely had to climb out of his truck and trudge to our front door to drop off a package. Now he does it almost every day. We're getting more deliveries that won't fit in our mailbox. On one recent day, for example, Two value size packages of Kellogg Special K with a touch of cinnamon. Normally, we would buy cereal at Safeway in town, but as shelter in place, we're discovering mirrored things that can be delivered. Before the pandemic, I would have made a Saturday morning project of driving to Griggs Nursery to buy tomato plants and, and a variety of herbs such as basil, or basil, uh, sage, and parsley. The other day they arrived, no worse for the wear, in a carton from Amazon. Delivery was free, and as it was for my bicycle seat cover and the 8.7-ounce bottle of Shout Advanced Ultra Concentrated Gel Set-In Stain Brush Laundry Stain Remover. So there you go. The Wells Fargo wagon is coming down the street, wrote Meredith Wilson in his delightfully nostalgic tune from The Music Man, Recalling the composer's early years in rural Iowa. It could be curtains or dishes or a double boiler. The other evening, a young woman pulled up to our house in a blue Chevy Spark. She wore latex glove and a surgical mask to provide a no-contact delivery from Domino's. A waved to her through the window and watched as she placed the pizza box on our doormat Retrieved the $5 tip I had left under the, stone, the small stone and wheeled her spark towards the home of the hungry shelters. NPR had a story recently about South Mountain Creamery in Middleton, Maryland, where the milk delivery business is booming. The owner, Tony Brusco, says his drivers are making nearly 10,000 deliveries each week, 
with another 6,000 customers on a waiting list. He says he hopes some of them will stick with the program when the pandemic ends. I have vivid childhood memories of watching the trucks from Emmendine Farms lurch up our driveway in Westchester County, New York, water pouring out of the back of the step van as the ice kept uh, producing cold melted. In those pre-Amazon, pre-coronavirus days, home delivery was common. The food market in town delivered our groceries. The hardware store delivered dry goods. And, of course, the brown UPS truck was omnipresent with packages from Sears and other department stores. Like Tony, the Maryland dairy man, I wondered how much of this will last. In 2012, excuse me, in 2019, parcel service was expanding with 10.6 billion business to home deliveries rec- recorded that year. According to an estimate published in Barron's, the total could climb to 19.5 billion by 2025. At the start of the pandemic, I was so eager to stock up on protective equipment that I scoured Amazon's site for hand sanitizer and wound up ordering the only thing in stock, a product called Beauty New. It arrived at our door a week later by China Post, direct from Shenzhen, about 680 miles from Wuhan. In phase two, I may rethink parts of my delivery strategy. So there we go. That covers this week in the Wall Street Journal. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week, this is Bill Feldham. Good day. God bless your week and God bless you. In Jesus' name.